So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews 12, and I'll read beginning at the first verse through the 17th verse, and we'll begin our study at the 14th verse. Hear now God's word. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems to be, not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Pursue after peace with all men, and after the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Thus far the reading of God's word. The author um, has, of course, come off of a long description of the life of faith illustrated through the heroes of the Old Testament. We find this in chapter 11 of Hebrews. By faith, so and so did the following. We see the active life and response of faith in the saints of old that is supposed to be uh, an example for us to follow. And chapter 12 begins with that note. Therefore, since we have all of these saints of old as a cloud of witnesses, a company of witnesses uh, watching us run the race, let us make sure that we run intently fixing our eyes on Jesus, run the race before us consistently and with endurance, remembering that Jesus himself despised the shame of the cross, and for the joy that was set before him endured 
the persecution that came to it. The author reminds them that they have not really, as yet anyway, undergone the severity of persecution that they could. They haven't resisted yet unto blood. And they've also forgotten that it's sons who undergo discipline. Bastards get away with anything they want. But true fathers who love their children discipline them. And likewise, God who loves us will discipline us and even put us through hard times to refine our faith and to increase our trust in Him. And so that we should continue with the Christian walk, uh, actually the Christian run, the race that is before us, despite the obstacles that are there. Even though this doesn't seem joyful now, it will yield peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, remember that expression. Remember you are running through affliction and persecution, and there are obstacles in the way. This is a difficult race that you have before us. But if you endure this trial, it will yield fruit, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And now we come to verse 14. Pursue after peace with all men, and after the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You are looking to have peaceable fruit, the peaceable fruit of righteousness realized in your life, and now the author calls upon them to produce peace and righteousness in their lives. And that, uh, that poses really a theological question at the very outset. How is it we live the Christian life? Is it through God producing something in us, fruit of peace and righteousness, or do we live the Christian life in an active way, seeking and striving after those things, such as peace and righteousness, that God would have us realize in our lives? Which is it? Is it that we depend upon God, or that we exert ourselves? You know, you know you're being set up for a false antithesis from Dr. Bronson by now. And the difficulty is that so many Christian groups don't see that as a false antithesis. They preach with all their hearts that it's one or the other. We have those groups that teach a, a rather uh, quiescent approach to sanctification. Be passive, um, rely upon God, just generate... Well, actually, you don't generate anything. You just have this pious feeling of letting God do whatever he wants to through you. Right? Let go and let God. You've probably heard that motto or seen it, whether in those words or not. And the attitude here is that sanctification and the living of the Christian life is a matter of being, if you will, on this tremendous torrent, this stream that's rushing down, you know, hill, and you're just kind of there on the top, and you're just floating along, and it's the power of God's Spirit that's driving you. And then you have uh, another image that is equally preached by, and fervently preached by people who believe it, who will tell you that sanctification is a matter of uh, a diligent self-examination, of humbling yourself before God, of striving every day to produce more holy affections and more obedient living in your life. And so the one says, let go, let the Spirit drive you, the other says, get out there and run the race. You've got to apply yourself. Unfortunately, uh, these are not mutually exclusive. It turns out that it may be helpful to think about the Spirit driving us along, and it may be helpful to think of ourselves striving after something, trying to attain a goal, uh, but those pictures are 
you see, not uh, to be taken as the whole story. Those who strive for the goal have the Spirit driving them to do that striving. Those who are driven by the Spirit will have a heart where they want to strive for what the Spirit would have them to have. These two really complement each other. And so the author, having said that God is going to produce through the affliction of their lives the peaceable fruit of righteousness, now turns around and he says, though that is God's fruit in your life, you strive for it. Pursue after peace with all men and after the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. There are two themes here I want to talk about for a few moments in each one. First, the theme of peace. Pursue after peace with all men. In Hebrews um, 13, the 20th verse, God is described as the God of peace. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equipped you in every good thing to do as well, working in us that which is pleasing in the sight through Jesus Christ. Jesus is described in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 2, as the king of righteousness and the king of peace. So it's the God of peace through the king of peace who has brought us into the peaceful relation of reconciliation. Turning your Bibles to Colossians 1, verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Paul declares that we have been reconciled to God. We were in a relationship of enmity. We were enemies of God. And he was angry with us. We were far from him. But now we've been drawn close by Christ's work. The blood of his cross has produced peace between us. Uh, consider what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 9. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and following. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It would not be difficult at all if you wanted, I think I've shown this to you before, there are various ways in which you can take a theme in the Bible and develop an entire theology around that theme as your organizing principle. And peace would be a very easy one to use. We have the God of peace, whose son is the king of peace, the prince of peace, as is declared in Isaiah's prophecy, whose work is declared in these passages that of bringing peace between sinners and a holy God. And because Christ has brought that reconciliation, 
he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We who follow the Prince of Peace are to become peacemakers. And this, of course, leads into the Christian ethic, the Christian lifestyle. We are expected by God to be people interested in promoting peace in our daily relationships. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's look at some passages pertaining to the 2 Thessalonians 3.16. 2 Thessalonians 3 of the 16th verse. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Isn't that a comforting verse? The Lord of peace grants you peace in every circumstance. You have a piece of paper. We want to collect this. I'll bet you could take just a moment or two right now and write down half a dozen instances in your life where you didn't feel peace at all. You felt really jumbled inside, really fearful, really angry, really hostile. God says that He, the Lord of peace, can grant you in all circumstances peace. God wants our lives to be characterized by peace. That's something to reflect on. Are our lives peaceful? Do we Experience that psychologically, the peace of God that passes all understanding? Do we really? So that we can go through whatever trial, whatever rough waters there may be, and know the peace of God. We trust Him. We rely on Him. He gives us a calm spirit. And do we produce in our relations with others peace? Are we peacemakers? The Bible calls us to do so. Mark 9, verse 50, for instance. Mark 9, verse 50. Jesus says, Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. Jesus is saying that to his followers. And this is a real indictment. It's hard to think about this very long without feeling quite guilty uh, and also dissatisfied uh, in terms of our corporate life as uh, God's people. And I'm not thinking just of our congregation. Actually, I'm not thinking especially of our congregation, but at the congregational level, at the denominational level, uh, the church as a whole. The fact that the church of Jesus Christ does not demonstrate peace, that we're not at peace with one another, makes it hard for the world to believe that we have anything to offer that will really bring peace on earth and goodwill to those who have God's favor. It's, um, it's a real indictment. Jesus said, be at peace with yourselves. You especially should learn how to be reconciled since you enjoy reconciliation with God. And then, of course, the exhortation of Paul in Romans 12, verse 18. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, there's an interesting emphasis here, both in Paul, Romans 12, and Hebrews, chapter 12, that we are to seek peace with all men. 
there's a tendency, sometimes in our circles especially, I think, to believe that um, it's really all right to have hostility toward the world and be at enmity with other individuals, but we should see kind of like a, uh, a warm, cozy relationship with those of the Christians. But uh, it's all right if we, you know, our next-door neighbor who's an unbeliever or the person you have to work with day by day, if you've got an ongoing feud or hostility with that person, that's to be expected and, and really maybe is, is a mark of, uh, of something good in your life that sets you apart. But Paul says, and Hebrews says, pursue after peace with all men, and as much as it lies in you, be at peace. But ask yourself, with respect to those people that you're not at peace with, is there something that you could do which would not compromise righteousness? Is there something which you could do that would bring a resolution to that hostile situation? That would decrease the animosity? That would bring the hostility to an end? The Bible says it's your moral obligation to do it. As much as lies in you. If you have the power to do it, and of course it has to be something which is a fruit of God. If you can't do sinful things to achieve peace. That is a price that is too high to pay. And we'll see that in just a moment in Hebrews. But if it's a righteous thing that you can do, and it's within your power, then you must do it. It's your obligation to do it. I'll be the first to confess, I don't live that way. I don't always look for the things that I can do to be at peace with. And it's to our shame, I think, that we don't focus more upon the peaceful spirit of our Savior, the Prince of Peace. We should be pursuing peace with all men. And I, I told you we need to be doing this in a principled way. You notice in Hebrews chapter 12 that this call to peace is coupled with a call to holiness. Peace may not be achieved at the price of our holy behavior. God doesn't expect us to be at peace to compromise with unrighteousness. And so often, of course, that is what the people that are hostile toward us want. People at work, people in your family, your neighbors, whatever it may be. What they want is for you to drop your Christian standards, to go contrary to your own convictions, to violate your own conscience in order to please them to be one with them, to run with the crowd, and then there'll be peace. We can't do that. The author of Hebrews says we are to pursue peace with all men and after the sanctification, the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Notice that these two virtues, peace and holiness, are manward relations and our Godward relation are tied together. Um, we see this as well, this tying of the two together in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. 2 Timothy 2, 22. Easy to remember if you want to look it up again. There Paul says, Now flee from youthful lust and pursue after righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Pursue after righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Their righteousness and peace are a dominant concept brought together. And again, 
we are to pursue them, we are told. These two are also united by Jesus himself in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5. Look at verses 8 and 9 of Matthew 5. Our Lord's own teaching while he was on earth. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The suggestion has been made, and I think it's, uh, it has some merit, that the author of the Epistle of Hebrews may already have known the Beatitudes, either through oral instruction or maybe even had a copy of Matthew's Gospel, um, because uh, these two are put together the concepts of peace and righteousness, and also the promises made that those who do um, uh, have purity of heart will do what? Will see God. And now the author of Hebrews says, pursue after peace with all men and sanctification, purity of heart, without which no one will see the Lord. Bringing together those concepts is a strong suggestion that he's heard the instruction of the Beatitudes already. The same promises made, especially of seeing God there. Okay, so what do we learn? It's that the holy man is a man of peace. The holy man is a man of peace. And where there is a lack of peace in our world, now I've been talking about in the church and in our personal relations, but just think about our society in general, or in international relations in particular, where there is a lack of peace in the world, doesn't it always stem from a lack of holiness? as well. For you see, the failure to have holiness and purity of heart, as well as the failure to realize peace in your relations with others, both stem from rebellion against God. Unholiness is rebellion against God's standards and character. And when we're in rebellion against God, it's only natural that we are in rebellion against our fellow man. And so peace and holiness go together. Let's look um, for a moment also at the promise that is made. Pursue after peace with all men and after the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The assumption here is the one which is pursued in a lot of medieval literature, in fact, becomes a controlling concept in medieval understanding of salvation and the Christian life, that what we're all striving after is a beatific vision. Uh, that beautiful vision of God which will belong to the saints um, when they finally leave this life and are perfected and that we all forever with God. Seeing God. And yet, it isn't literally that we see God because God is invisible, right? Can God be seen? Not that many lessons ago, but I taught you about the concept of visibility and invisibility. We said God is not essentially invisible, but is sovereignly invisible. Someone explain that. Yeah? Uh, I would think it's visible in the sense that he's visible through the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's true that God has shown himself in his own son, who is the very image of his substance. In, in terms of the 
the uh, sort of the essential thing. It's not necessary that he be invisible. It's not an essential part of his nature. It's not contrary to God's character to show himself. If he were essentially invisible, when he shows himself, he would no longer be God. And so we say that he's sovereignly invisible, meaning that God chooses when, where, and how he will show himself. He showed himself in the burning bush to Moses. He showed himself to the Apostle Paul in another way. And we will eventually see God. And uh, I can't tell you what that day is going to be like. You can study theology for a quarter of a century and still not be able to explain that one. It's going to be a wondrous day. But the author speaks of that concept of seeing God. And he says it's impossible for us to have that experience of being with God, having that intimate relationship of being with God if we aren't people who are characterized by peace and by holiness. But now notice the necessity of holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is a verse that needs to be preached in just about every evangelical church in our land. Because the prevailing teaching of the evangelical church in our day is that if you simply pray the sinner's prayer or sign a decision card or have some kind of barren faith in Jesus, that you will be saved. But the author here says you cannot be saved without holiness. Does that mean that he believes in works righteousness, that you're going to achieve something yourself? No. Paul said it well in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that Jesus Christ has become unto us sanctification <coughs> from God. Jesus is our holiness. But those of us who have trusted in the holiness of Jesus Christ and rely on his intercession and work on our behalf are people who are motivated to pursue after good works and to imitate that same righteousness and holiness in their own lives. Look at 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter, the first chapter, verses 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's a very simple principle quoted from uh, the book of Leviticus there in verse 16. There God says, You shall be holy. Why? Because I am. You shall be like me. You shall emulate my character. Jesus says in Matthew 5:48, You are to be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. God is the standard of our living. God is our moral ideal his own character. And so we must strive after holiness because the God who saved us is a holy God. First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, the Apostle John tells us that in that future day when Jesus appears, we will see him and become like unto him. Even now as we anticipate seeing God, seeing Jesus, that anticipation and hope should um, 
spark within us, a desire to be like Him now. And you realize the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again, and every eye will see Him, and those who love Him will be made like unto Him. And therefore, we should be really done with attachment to the things of this world, and attachment to, um, to unholy and ungodly living. We shouldn't cherish our sins. We should rather be eager for the day when holiness will characterize us, even the holiness of Jesus himself. And so that's a motive to godliness, to know that we will see God, in particular, see his Son. The author of Hebrews tells us that those who are not holy will be excluded from the presence of God. Uh, two passages that I think we can look at to confirm that. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. That language of Paul's, you see, is plastic. He says, Don't be deluded. It's a rhetorical question. Don't you understand? The unrighteous cannot inherit God's kingdom. And so he goes on to say, Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. If it were not for the work of Christ, washing us of our filthiness, justifying us in God, and granting us sanctification, holiness of character, we could not belong to the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Don't listen to the easy believism that's preached on the television set and that makes churches so popular. You ever saw them think, why is it crowds flock to churches to tell them that there are no requirements of discipleship, there's no cross to bear, there's no expectation of holiness, no striving after sanctification, no demand for good works in your life? It's because that's what we all want. We want to live like hell and go to heaven. The Bible doesn't permit it. The Bible says, pursue after peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see God. One more point about that verse. I'm going to use all my time on this one verse right now. It's a good one. The verse says, pursue after peace with all men and the sanctification. I wonder if in your translation some of you will have pursue after sanctification. It's not a horrible translation. I mean, that is true, but it's not as true as the more technical translation, pursue the sanctification without which, pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the reason for that is because there is more than one concept of holiness. There are a lot of spurious counterfeit notions of holiness around. And the author of Hebrews doesn't say pursue after just any good idea of holiness. Pursue just any notion of sanctification. He says pursue that sanctification that brings you close to God. I'm going to give you an example of a sanctification that does not bring us close to God. Paul speaks of it in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says there are those who teach 
that we shouldn't handle certain things, we shouldn't taste certain things. People who teach, um, who forbid entering into marriage, or the eating of meats, or the drinking of wine, or whatever it may be, people who teach abstinence as a form of holy behavior. And we are really suckers for that. In American culture, we believe that. We think that people who take vows of celibacy and who wear reverse collars or become nuns or whatever it may be are people that are really religious. And what did I tell you just a few weeks ago? What did I point out? Paul says, this is, this is the doctrine of demons. And that such doctrine is of no value against sins of the flesh. Absolutely worthless when it comes to holiness. And yet we buy into that. We think that's really something. The author of Hebrews says, be careful. Pursue that sanctification, the true sanctification, without which no one will see God. You know, the Pharisees uh, had a form of sanctification too, didn't they? Quite a regime of sanctification. They had elaborate doctrines and practices to produce alleged holiness in their behavior. Jesus exposed them. I had wanted to read a couple of passages about the Pharisees, but I'll, I'll skip it. I'll remind you that in Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gives extended diatribes against the Pharisees. One of the things that stands out prominently in the Pharisaical approach to holiness is a, a desire for human applause. You see what motivated the Pharisees is not love for God and his holy character, but the love of men. My guess is that if you're honest with yourself, as I try to be honest with mine, that there's some of that in all of us. Sometimes we strive after a righteous behavior, not because we love the righteousness of God himself, but because we want men to think well of us. That's Pharisaism. The author of Hebrews says, don't pursue just any holiness. Pursue that holiness without which you can't see God. Matthew 5, 16. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The whole sermon will be preached. In fact, I probably will preach a sermon on that. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I'm afraid that we so often look at righteousness as one of the, uh, the options. Recently, uh, my family purchased a new Mazda to help with our family out here. And uh, one of the things we had to ask ourselves, what are some of the features we wanted in this car? You know, it didn't worry really too much about whether we had power windows or, or manual windows. Or we got manual because of our financial class. But, uh, you know, a car is a car. Those are what are called options. They're, they're additions to the essence of the car. I'm afraid we often look at holiness as though it were an option in our lives. It's kind of like we can be um, we can be GLC Christians or we can be RX7 Christians. If we choose the nicer options, that's great, but if we don't, we're still doing okay. The holiness we're talking about here is not an option. It's not one of the goodies that's in addition to the basic car. It's that holiness without which you can't see God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Don't see it as just, well, you know, one of these days I'm going to get around to living a holy life. But you're hungry for it. 
except that when you get hungry, and especially when you get thirsty, I tell you about that because of the medication I take. When you get thirsty, boy, it's going to take a lot to keep you from either eating or drinking. Do we have that inner spiritual drive for righteousness in our lives? If we don't, we won't see God. But you know, if we do what Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they they shall pass. That drive and desire is there. God will not leave you in. God will not leave you there. God will satisfy you. You'll be full. That's one of the verses. Verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by it many be defiled. The integrity and the peace of the Christian fellowship must be preserved. If we are pursuing peace and righteousness, that means we will look for corporate holiness, not just individual holiness. We will see corporate harmony not just individual reconciliation. Verse 15, um, in my translation, um, begins a new sentence that is not true to the Greek, and unfortunately, I think, um, leaves us... Uh, we don't pick up everything God wants us to pick up here when it's uh, translated that way. The first word in verse 15 actually is a participle that carries on from the thought of verse 14. Pursue after peace with all men and after the sanctification of that which no one will see God, seeing through it. See, that's part and parcel of pursuing peace and righteousness that we see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Bitterness in even one person can disrupt the harmony of all and defile the group. 1 Corinthians 5 6 is an example of that teaching. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Sometimes people ask us, why are we so fastidious about discipline in our congregation? Why do we worry so much when there are unreconciled feelings between people? And when those who are perceived to be sinning do not repent? Well, that's just why. Because the Bible says that if we are pursuing after the holiness of God, that we will see to it that no one has that root of bitterness that will spring up and defile the whole group. I don't know all of your church backgrounds, but I know enough of them that I think you know already by very bad experience that that's true. It only takes one. Sometimes it's not just one. But it, it doesn't take a whole lot of people in a congregation to be embittered before a group is ruined. So the author of Hebrews is telling the Christian community in the areas in which he writes that they must see to it that this doesn't happen in their midst. The verb for see to it actually is the word for overseeing. It's the same word episkopos that we use for a bishop or an overseer, an elder in the congregation. Here the author says, all of you take responsibility for this. You must show practical and careful concern for each other in the Christian community. And verse 14 was tough on you because um, you know that you don't pursue peace with all men and you're not pursuing holiness and hungry and thirsting after righteousness. 
I mean, we're thinking of ourselves individually, but the 15th verse says, you have an equal responsibility to your fellow believers. You must oversee them. You must see to it that they do not fall short of the grace of God. And this is going to come as something like a sledgehammer to you, I realize. Most people won't say this, and it's not popular. But you have to understand that when people display a root of bitterness in a congregation, and begin to file the whole group, the Bible says they are in danger of falling short of the grace of God. See, we all like to think that um, we're all on the same team and that we just don't get along so well together. The Bible says those who will not get along may not really belong to the team at all. You say that they profess faith in Jesus. With their words, they say all the right things. They may act like nice people around certain individuals, just they can't get along with the congregation. Well, and you read over here on eyes, what's it say? It talks about falling short of the grace of God. How short of? Actually means to fall behind. Fall behind. And the reason I point that out is because the imagery of a race is being appealed to again here. All along the author says, run the race before you, keeping your eyes on Jesus. Stay in straight tracks. Remember, it says don't wander out of the course. Here he says don't fall behind. Because those who fall behind in the race are disqualified. They come short of the grace of God and cut themselves out of the contest. Here we have that theme which the author has been pursuing throughout the epistle. The warning against apostasy. That you will fall short of the grace of God. And here's one of the ways in which you fall short of the grace of God. You became a root of bitterness that defiles the whole congregation. <clears throat> because peacefulness and righteousness do not characterize your life. <clears throat> the author cites the warning of Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 and 19. I want to turn back to that for a moment. Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 and 19. Moses says, Lest there shall be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. And it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. Precisely what the author of Hebrews is talking about. The person who says, I don't have to worry about the, the, the threats, the warnings of God, I have peace. And he ends up destroying the moist and the dry together. Be careful, Moses says. And the author of Hebrews says, Be careful that there isn't someone who represents a root of bitterness in your midst. A person embittered and rebellious who, if not checked, will have a disastrous effect on the entire community. will ruin the entire crop, as it were. And then in verses 16 and 17, we get an example. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. 
An example of such an embittered apostate is found in Esau in the Old Testament, used as a moral example of what we should avoid. Chapter 11 is full of examples of what we should strive after, walk in the steps of faithful Abraham, be like Noah, be like Samson, be like these, you know, heroes of faith, but don't be like Esau. Esau despised and If you remember the story of Esau, I trust that Hebrews says he was a fornicator, an immoral person, probably a reference to the fact that he took foreign wives, two of them, and they became a grief to his parents. And Esau was a profane person. A profane person is someone who contemptuously tramples upon what is sacred. Hebrews 10, verse 29, we have a description of a profane person. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Esau insulted the Spirit of grace. You know how he did it? You remember the story? Esau was a hairy man. He was a red man. And thus, his name is called Edom. Actually, his name is called Edom because of a particular meal he wanted to eat once, which was reddish in color as well. He came in from the fields hunting. This is in Genesis 25, if you want to read it tonight. And his brother, Jacob, had been stewing some pottage, lentil soup, technically, lentil stew, which had a reddish color to it. And Esau was so hungry that he said, let me have some of that good stuff that I can eat. And Jacob, being the Jacob that he was, Jacob meaning supplanter, the deceiver, Jacob took advantage of Esau. And he said, well, sure, Esau, you want a bowl of uh, lentil stew? Give me your birthright. And Esau, without a passing thought, said, it's yours. Sat down and ate. Rose up to play trampled upon that which was sacred. That was a special blessing. He insulted the spirit of grace because he didn't regard holy things as holy. He was a profane person. He squandered his birthright and the author of Hebrews puts it well for a single meal. You know that's absurd, isn't it? You think about it. What that birthright represented, not just in terms of God's covenant with Abraham and redemptive history, that is very important, but even in earthly terms, the birthright was worth more than one bowl of stew, for crying out loud. This was a bad economic transaction, if nothing else. But Esau did that, and he didn't care about it until later. And then he wept. He wanted to see it reversed, but he couldn't, even though he saw it with tears. And the Bible says he found no place for repentance in it. For you see, what broke Esau's heart is not that he had insulted God, but that he had lost something that he thought. It was his loss and not his profanity that he loved. And I'm afraid that's something we have to be looking at in our own lives. We see it in our children, don't we? Our children often cough up their apologies after they've been caught doing something they shouldn't do. And they know, you know, that 
now the, uh, the penal arm of the law is going to come down upon them. And they don't want that. So now they're sorry. And uh, when I see that in my own children, but I have to ask myself too, when we see that we're about to be punished for what we've done wrong, is it the punishment we regret? Is it our loss that we regret? Or is it our lack of holiness? Our failure to be like God? Esau found no opportunity to repent. And that's because it was not a godly grief that he had which produces repentance leading to salvation, but rather a worldly grief which brings only death. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Now there are two ways of grief. The world grieves one way, and the saints grieve another. Godly grief leads to true repentance. Esau then is an example of the impossibility of restoring again to repentance those who have rebelled openly against the clear light. And that is what the author of Hebrews has been so concerned with all the way from chapter 6. And I'll remind you, in closing tonight, of the words of chapter 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified in themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The author warns you, too, tonight, about falling short of the grace of God. He exhorts you not to be an Esau, not to be a person who squanders your birthright. By the way, in this very chapter, let me say this in place. Uh, if you look at verse um, 23 of our chapter, the author speaks of the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The firstborn, those who have birthright privileges, we have birthright privileges in heaven. Don't squander them as Esau squandered his birthright. The earthly blessings, don't compromise your Christian faith, but rather pursue peace with all men, and that holiness without which no one will see God. Overseeing the lives of your fellow believers, that they not fall short of the grace of God, and that the congregation's peace and righteousness be destroyed by a root of bitterness growing up in it. Because if we are like Esau, we shall end up like Esau, and there will be no place for repentance found for us. Sometimes uh, Calvinists find it hard to take these warnings seriously, but we should take them seriously. The fact that God predestines his people, and the fact that he will see to the perseverance of his, the, the preservation, pardon me, of his saints, does not remove the fact that we are to persevere and we are to strive after holiness. And if we are not doing that, if we are falling back, we shall eventually fall short of the grace of God. That is a real threat. So thank God that there is a hunger and thirst for righteousness in you tonight. And as you hear these words, though you know that you have fallen short of the glory of God and have sinned against the daily, you nevertheless are stirred up to not only humble yourself and ask God's forgiveness, but to seek His strength that you will run the race more purely and consistently with endurance from this point on. Not like Esau, but like those who have a, have a truly godly grief over their sin. If you want to ask any questions, I know we're a little over time, but uh, this has been a heavy lesson. Bob? A verse from Malachi, which we can summarize, is that 
Not only because Esau, in his own character, was a profane prisoner, but Edom, uh, his descendants, turned against the Jews when they were attempting to enter the Promised Land, and the perpetual curse of God is upon the nation of Edom. Other observations or questions before we break tonight? Uh, yes, I'm uh, um, verse 15. Uh, the concept of bitterness. Uh, I know you don't want to take your finger to the uh, kitchen. Uh, so to speak, but um, uh, first of all, what is the metaphor of bitterness referred to? Um, in the sense that it refers to taste, literally. Uh, is the meaning that's um, portrayed here the same as what we mean by bitterness in, in current parlance? And secondly, does it, um, uh, does it also refer to the individual here? You, you emphasize the corporate. Right. Well, I think the corporate aspect must be the um, the basic meaning of the text because he's quoting Deuteronomy, and in Deuteronomy there it speaks of the individual who says in his own heart, "I'm really at peace with God, though I'm walking in my sin and my rebellion and so forth." And that person represents a root of poisonous fruit and wormwood. Wormwood being bitterness. And so our author picks up that allusion from Deuteronomy and says there are individuals who are not walking with God, who are apostates, or who are in, in, in at least uh, the danger of becoming apostates, who represent the possibility of a poisonous root growing up, a bitter root growing up in the midst of the congregation. And it will be bitter in our, in our um, contemporary sense, bad tasting, sour, but it will be even worse than that, poisonous, and that such a person could lead others astray into uh, damnation as well. But, uh, okay, uh, more specifically, um, any, I, I take it then that any uh, error on the part of an individual could become a poison to the group and hence be a source of bitterness. But what about um, uh, bitterness in one's soul, so to speak, uh, a bitter spirit, uh, more individualized? Well, I don't believe this has any individual um, uh, application. Uh, you, may, you may find some indirect analogies and so forth, but the, what the author is talking about, notice the context. He says, pursue peace and righteousness and oversee others that they not fall short of the grace of God. And how will they fall short of it? By failing either in terms of their righteousness being unrepentant sinners in the midst of the congregation, 1 Corinthians 5, the little leaven that leavens the whole lump, or through their lack of peace with others, being people that bring bitterness and sourness to the relationships within the congregation. The threat is twofold with respect to their holiness and with uh, respect to their uh, peaceful, reconciled relations with others. Doug, were you going to ask something? 
I got you work. <laughs> okay, um, John and Scott, and I think we'll stop. Well, the promise is made to Abraham that he would be um, a god to Abraham and to his seed after him. You remember that uh, there's this narrowing process, okay? Abraham has two children, right? Isaac and Ishmael, but Ishmael is not chosen, Isaac is. Okay? Isaac has uh, children, Jacob and Esau. Not both of them will be children of promise. Esau was in the position of promise. The birthright was his. It went to the younger child as the, prom uh, as the prophecy of God stated that the elder will serve the younger. Yes, they were both circumcised and therefore in covenant with God. However, the greater privilege in terms of the household of faith and in terms of the leadership of God's people would have been the firstborns by right. But according to God's ordination, it became the younger child because the firstborn was apostate. Scott? Yeah, I guess I have a practical question about being at peace. Let's say you have a situation where you're in contact with me. Let's say one of your sons, somebody who has a house, another believer, already in that the other father refuses to be at peace, right? He will not agree to disagree and to focus on those things that both families have in common as professing believers. He wants to proselytize my children contrary to the teaching of their home. And therefore he is uh, interfering in being a busybody in the raising of my children and, and very holy things. And if he will not respect my prerogatives as a father, it is because of his sin and arrogance that we are not at peace, not because I say, no, I don't want you to go back over to that home, where they will purposely try to mislead you. No, as I said, peace does not mean at the cost of unholiness. And it would be unholy of me to turn over my children to the influence of those who want to, what, as I see it, mislead them in improper paths. Um, but I do think Christians need to work harder at being at peace with one another, even though they haven't resolved the doctrinal differences yet. It makes a big difference in the attitude with which we approach that. And some people just will not be at peace. And um, I smart a little here, and I smart the others of you in the room as well, because, you know, for the most part, we have the reputation of being reformed, of being the troublemakers doctrinally. But, and, and I know we, we have our own personality problems and so forth, but, you know, in the vast majority of cases, I have found it is those who do not agree with our doctrine who create an unpeaceful situation socially and just will not be 
resolve, who just will not give up on the issue, who just will not pray and study and continue to be friendly about it, they're the ones who end up breaking off social relations and giving us the cold shoulder so often. Isn't that true? I don't say that so that we might, you know, say we're one up on them, but I'd say, as a matter of fact, in the doctrinal differences that divide people, often it's not the person holding the hard doctrine that's at fault for them. It's the person who's in the weaker position who refuses to be teaching. Okay, I've taken you longer than I should have. I apologize. Close the word there. Lord, we thank you for the word that you've given us tonight, even though it does prick our hearts and shows us how, how far short we do fall of your glory, how much we sin against you. We do pray that our response would be a godly response to our sin, that as we see ourselves falling short, we will be stirred up to be more like you, to be holy even as you are holy. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work within us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, and that as righteous people, or as people who are growing in righteousness, we'd also grow in our desire for peace with one another. How we thank you for the peace that you've established between us and you. How we thank you for the Prince of Peace who came into this world and created reconciliation through the work of his cross. How we thank you that he has been raised from the dead and powerfully ascended to the right hand of God and there gave the Holy Spirit to his church and that spirit is, is building us up even now. We pray, Father, that in our individual walk, you'd also give us a concern for the corporate body of Christ and do with the Spirit. We pray that we would look after each other and exhort one another to greater holiness in our lives and greater harmony and peace within our, our, our congregation, within the church as a whole. We pray, Father, that none of us would prove to be Esau's who fall short of the grace of God because we are so enamored of earthly things and of our own individual satisfaction that we do not care enough to satisfy you. We ask again for your forgiveness this night as we go on our way. Give us your peace in our hearts. Help us to know Jesus Christ and to know him more intimately and purely. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.